Over the years, during his festive assembly of Purim, the Lubavitcher Rebbe dedicated a significant amount of time to explore and explain various aspects in the intriguing and fascinating narrative of the Megillah of the Book of Esther, which is read on Purim. But from many discussions over many Purims, there seems to me that there was one major theme that emerged from the narrative. Actually, a powerful idea that pervades the entire story and narrative of Purim. And this evening, I want to explore one point developed from many years of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's discussions on the Megillah. Primarily, this is based on his Purim talks of 1957, 1962, 1966, 1967, and 69. I say one point because as I was preparing this class, I actually felt bad that I had to um, leave out so many fascinating and intriguing ideas, but based on the limitation of time, we will explore one of these major subplots of the Megillah. Let's begin with a question, an important question in the actual story. Haman, the Persian minister, persuades the Persian king Ahasuerus to issue forth a decree of genocide against the entire Jewish people. Every Jewish man, woman, and child would be exterminated in a single day. Mordechai, who was a Jewish leader at the time, a great figure, a member of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish court, and had a position in the palace. He sat at the portal of the king, at the portal of the mansion. Mordechai hears the news, and he communicates. He sends a message to the first lady, to Queen Esther, who is a Jewish girl, a Jewish young woman, to plead with her husband on behalf of her people. Esther sends back a message to Mordechai, she can't. Why? She has not been summoned to her husband for 30 days to enter into his inner chamber without permission can equal a death sentence. You go in and then you go out with a head shorter. And the king has not invited her for 30 days for her to enter into that chamber is literally endangering her life. Mordechai sends back a message and he persuades Esther to go. He tells her, if you don't go in today, the Jewish people will be saved in either case. But you will have lose, lost your opportunity. The reason for which you have become a queen in the first place. Esther is persuaded and now she sends back a message to Mordechai. Now listen to this message. Please bring up source number one in your curriculum in the PDF document right below the video. Esther sends back this message to Mordechai. Go and gather all of the Jewish people who are living in Shushan 
the capital of the Persian Empire, present-day Iran. Fast with me, do not eat and drink for three days and nights. Me and my maids will also fast for three days and nights. And that is how I will enter into the king without permission. And if I perish, I shall perish. And indeed, Esther does just that. Mordechai summons the entire Jewish community of Shushan and they engage in a three-day-long fast of repentance, of prayer, of return to God. Esther, the queen, the first lady, also fasts. And on the third day, the Megillah continues to tell the story in chapter 5. On the third day, after fasting for three days, Esther dresses up in her garments of royalty and enters into the chamber of the king. He looks at her and he's charmed by her presence. He stretches out his golden scepter. She touches it this meant he gave her permission to come in. She comes in. He asks her what she wants and she invites him and Haman, Haman, for a grand feast. At the feast he asks her what she wants. She invites the king and Haman to a second feast. At the second feast, of course, she exposes for the first time her Jewish identity. Accuses Haman of wanting to kill her and her entire people. Ahasuerus the king has Haman executed, hanged, following which Esther manages to persuade the king to nullify and obliterate the decree of genocide against her people. Hence the festival of Purim. But let us ask this simple question. What was going through Esther's mind when she decided to fast for three days and three nights before entering into the innermost chamber of her, king, of her husband? Esther knew very well that what charmed Ahasuerus so deeply about her was her presence, her looks, her physique. Does it make sense to go fast three days and three nights before you want to impress and enthrall Ahasuerus? To borrow an expression of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in one of his Purim talks, we would expect that Esther should go for three days to the beauty parlor. Esther should have whined and dined herself. She should have taken care of herself, ate well, drank well, slept well. Go through all of the rituals and routines which enhance your body, enhance your beauty, enhance your looks. And then confidently she could come to Ahasuerus and know, ah, she will charm him. Esther does exactly the opposite. She engages in a fast with the rest of the Jewish people. What's, what was her logic? You might say, Esther felt, eh, who cares about Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus is not the master of the world. God is the master of the world. And therefore it's appropriate for me to fast, which is a form of tshuva, it's a form of repentance, it's a form of prayer, of beseeching God Almighty for His salvation. Granted, you believe that God runs the world and you have to turn to Him. So why bother with Ahasuerus? 
Why does Mordechai summon her and ask her to go to Ahasuerus the king? Why does she agree to go? Let us go to synagogue. Let us pray. Let us study. Let us fast. Let us return. Let us repent. And forget Ahasuerus. Who runs the world? If we believe Ahasuerus runs the world, if we believe the Persian emperor is the one who has the power to decide the fate of the Jewish people, then you have to follow the rules. The rules dictate that when you enter into a king's chamber and you haven't been invited 30 days and you know that this is very risque and your life is on the line because if he doesn't like what he sees and you're uninvited, this is not a democracy. You will be killed. So follow the rules. Do it right. Get dressed. Wine and dine yourself. If you don't believe in Ahasuerus, if you believe that God runs the world, so forget this whole meeting. Go to synagogue, join the Jews, and fast and pray and repent. Why did this decree happen against the Jewish people? What was the cause of it? There's a fascinating discussion in Talmud, in the tractate dedicated to Purim and its laws, tractate Megillah, page 12. Please bring up source number 2 in your source sheet, a PDF right below the video. The students of the great Talmudic sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, who lived in the second century after the common era, a few hundred years after the story of Purim. The students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, why did the Jewish people of that generation deserve a punishment of extermination. Omar lahem imruatem, their teacher told them, you answer. Omruloi, they said, because of the, Jew the Jewish people enjoyed the feast of that wicked person. As the beginning of the Megillah, the first chapter tells us, the Persian king Ahasuerus threw a feast for all of his ministers and servants for 180 days. That's what you call a party. A half a year of partying. Following which he threw another feast for the next seven days for all of the residents of the capital of Shushan, including the Jews. And the Jews enjoyed the feast of that wicked person. That's why they deserve this punishment. Im Cain, they asked. Im Cain, he asked, the Talmud says. Then the punishment should be relevant only to the Jews who lived in Shushan. They were the ones who partook in Achashverosh's feast. But the Jews in the rest of the empire and the rest of the world should have remained unaffected by the decree. Amrulai, they told him, Rab Shimon Bayechai, Emer Atta. Now you answer the question. Amar lehem, he said, As far as the rest of the Jews, they bow down yet a few decades earlier to the idolatry which Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, erected, and this was a response for it. And as he continues, they did it only out of fear, out of coercion, and therefore the decree actually never materialized. God only scared them, but they were saved. Now, what do we learn from this Talmud? That the Jews of Shushan were responsible. They had this terrible, harsh decree against them because they enjoyed the feast of this wicked person. Apparently, the way we understand this discussion of the Talmud, they went to a party which served non-kosher food. They ate non-kosher food. But my question is, since when 
is the penalty for eating non-kosher food death. The Torah prohibits a Jew from consuming non-kosher food, but there's no death penalty for it. Just because they enjoyed the non-kosher food at the Feast of Achashverosh, did they deserve to be exterminated? Besides, the question is even stronger. Was the meal really consisting of non-kosher food? The same page in the Talmud, bring up source number three, on the bottom of the page, Megillah, Dafyad Beza, Medalev, the Talmud quotes the verse in chapter one of the Megillah, the king made sure that the feast takes place according to the desire of every man and man. What does this mean? The king made sure that the feast is done according to the desire of Ish and Ish. Of Mordechai who's called Ish and of Haman who's called Ish in the Megillah. Rashi, the basic commentator of the Talmud, explains that Achashverosh put Mordechai and Haman in charge over the bar. All the drinks were under Mordechai and Haman's supervision. That means that the party was supervised by none other than Mordechai HaTzadik. Mordechai, a leading figure of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish spiritual body, the Jewish Supreme Court. Mordechai, one of the Anshei Knesset Sagdola, the men of the great assembly who were the leaders of the Jewish people at that time. Mordechai was there. So this party had the best rabbinic supervision. As they say, Mahadrim in a Mahadrim. There was a whole section, a whole smorgasbord. I don't know exactly how it was set up. And a whole bar that was strictly kosher according to the highest standards. Besides, there's another medrash, fascinating medrash, source number four, bring up source number four. The medrash rabbi says in Esther, the Megillah says they gave to drink without coercing anybody. What does it mean without coercing? Nobody was forced to drink wine that was not kosher in any way. So what was the problem? If a Jew gets invited to the feast of the king, and there's a lovely kosher section with all types of kosher delicacies and drinks. New? Some commentators say the problem was not the food. The problem was something, was something that happened during this feast. The Talmud says in Megillah, page 11, page 12, that Achashverosh made a calculation that the 70 years which the Jewish, during which the Jewish people were supposed to be subjected to exile and afterwards return to their homeland and rebuild the temple, the Beis HaMikdash ended. And they were not liberated. And therefore he concluded that they are hopeless, the temple will never be rebuilt. And for this special feast, Achashverosh put on the clothes of the Kohen Gadol of the high priest. Achashverosh took out the beautiful vessels that were used in the first temple in the Beis HaMikdash that was destroyed by the Vuchadnetzah by the Babylonian emperor. To partake in this feast and enjoy it meant endorsing and approving and celebrating the destruction of the temple. That was the gewalt. That was the terrible element here. But then the question is, why were the children guilty? Why were all Jews in Shushan being targeted? Another interesting question. The words of the Talmud are, They enjoyed the meal of that wicked person. If the problem was non-kosher food, 
What's the difference if it's a meal of a wicked person or a righteous person? If a righteous person serves a meal with not kosher food, you're allowed to eat it. What's the difference if it's a rasha or a tzaddik? There's another major question when it comes to Purim. Every Jewish holiday has a name. And the name of every Jewish holiday is a name taken from the holy tongue, from Hebrew, from Lashon Kaidish. Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, even Hanukkah, which is not a biblical holiday. Hanukkah is a holiday that was created by the sages during the Second Temple era, after Purim, later Purim. The name is Hanukkah, it's a Hebrew name. One exception, Purim. The name Purim is not a name in the Hebrew language in Lashon Kodesh. The Megillah itself says, it's a Persian word. The Megillah says, Al-Kain karu Purim. They gave these days, this holiday, a name Purim, Al-Shem Ha-Purim. Pur, what's Pur? Pur is a Persian word. And the Megillah therefore has to translate it and says, Hu ha it means a lot. Because Haman cast a lot to choose which would be the most fertile day to designate as the day of extermination for the Jewish people. He chose the exact day of the month, which month of the 12 months of the year, which day of the month, it fell out to be the 13th of Adar, Yud Gimel Adar, and this was the poor which Haman cast in order to choose the right day. Ultimately, his lot was transformed and it became the day when the Jewish people attacked those aggressors who came to kill them that day. And they came out triumphant as the story continues. So the Megillah explains, what's Purim? Purim is the lot, which is the Gairo. So the question is, why is this the only Jewish holiday which they couldn't give a Jewish name to? It could have been the name Gairalois. The Megillah itself says, what's Purim? Al Shema Pur, who are Gairo? Pur in Hebrew is Gairo. So why give it a Persian name and then the Megillah has to translate what it means? For the Jew who's reading Torah and wants to know what Torah means, give it a Jewish name. Names in Judaism are very significant. Names have very profound symbolism. The name is considered to be that which is... The name is considered to capture and embody the very essence of that which has this name. Why then choose a holiday, a Jewish holiday, celebrating the defeat of the Persian minister Haman and the Persian king Ahasuerus who wanted to exterminate the Jewish people, and yet you give it a Persian name, Purim. Not a Jewish name, Goyrol, Goyrolois in plural. Which brings us to another astounding fact. The Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, has 24 books. The five books of Moses, Hamishachum, Shetairah, Bereshish, Moses, Vayikra, Bamid, Badvarim, Genesis, and then Numbers, and then Leviticus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the books of the prophets, Yahushua, Shaiftim, Shmuel, Malachim, and so forth, and then the books of Ksuvim of the writings. Altogether, 24 books known as the Chavdalet Sifri, according to 24 sacred books. The only book in the entire Hebrew Bible, in the entire Tanakh, that doesn't have God's name mentioned even a single time, is the book of Esther, the Megillah. Even Shir Hashirim, the powerful love poem, describing the tremendous affection and sensual love between the groom and the bride as a metaphor for God and the Jewish people. Even the Song of Songs, eight chapters of powerful graphic images of affection, 
has God's name mentioned at the end. The only book which can't afford to mention Hashem's God's name even a single time is the book of Esther. How are we to understand this? The whole festival of Purim is the celebration of the miracle of Jewish survival in the presence of such an aggressive, scary plan of annihilation and genocide by the Hitler of that generation called Haman. The th- entire theme of the narrative explains how Mordechai was the only one who would not prostrate himself to Haman. Part of the story of the Megillah is Esther suggested all the Jewish people fast for three days and three nights. Why is Mordechai not bowing down to Haman? Because he's a Jew and he believes in God. Why are we celebrating Purim? Because of the miracle of Jewish survival. Why are we fasting? Why were they fasting three days? In order to return to God. And yet, God is completely not mentioned. Not only not many times, not even once. And yet, this is one of the 24 holy books, books of the Bible, written by divine inspiration. But God doesn't make it into this book. Generally, by Jews, the mention of God is a very sacred and significant part of life. Many Jews have a custom on the top of a letter. You write, Baruch Hashem, Deshmaya, Blessed God, in order to connect it to God. There's a famous Doharic expression, There's no space devoid of Him. So this constitutes a major, the major component of Jewish life. One exception. The Megillah is an entire book, a whole festival, a whole celebration. The happiest holiday in the Jewish calendar. But God doesn't make it into it. Go figure, what do you make of this? I want to bring up another very interesting question. It's strange, it's mysterious. We need to understand it together. You remember the story. The Jews are fasting three days and three nights. Esther is also fasting. That night the king can't fall asleep. He keeps on waking up, so he asks his servants to bring him his diary. And he finds there recorded a story that happened years ago. Two of his servants, Bixen and Seresh, planned to assassinate him. They wanted to poison Achashverosh. Mordechai found out about the plot. He reported it to the king, and the king's life was saved. Bixen and Seresh were executed. The king is now, in the middle of the night, a restless night, reading this story. He never thanked, he never rewarded Mordechai for saving his life from assassination. He asks his servants... What do you do? How do you reward a person whom you want to honor and pay tribute to? That moment, Haman comes in. Why is Haman coming in? Because his wife gave him a great idea to build a tree. To build a tall tree, 50 amas. And have Mordechai hanged on the tree. And he, Haman, is coming to to the king to suggest this. As he walks in, the king asks him, tell me, Haman. What would you do to honor somebody whom the king wants to show favor to? Haman, of course, thinks, I'm the man. Who would the king want to show favor to more than me? I am the hero. I'm the guy. He loves me. He's infatuated by me. I run this place. Certainly me. So Haman, of course, uses his fertile imagination. He comes up with the best idea. He tells the king, 
You have to take this person, you have to dress him with your garment, you have to put on your crown on him, you have to give him your horse, and you have to have your servant take him around on your horse throughout the city, on your horse throughout the city, and declare in public, This is what is done to the man whom the king desires his favor and his honor and his glory. And what does the king say? Go, take the garment, take the horse, exactly as you said, and go dawn Mordechai the Jew with my royal garment and lead him on my horse around the city and declare, this is what's done to the man whom the king wants to show favor to. Imagine. Imagine the scene. Genocide, the decree for genocide was issued forth. Mordechai is in a sack, he's fasting. Haman is on top of his game, everyone is bowing down to him, everyone is prospering themselves to him. He got his desire fulfilled, he promised the king a great bribery, a great treasure for the permission to exterminate the Jewish people. And now suddenly, this metamorphosis, he now has to schlep Mordechai around the city and declare, now take a look at what happens. Something very strange happens. Bring up source number five. Haman takes the royal garment of the king and the horse and he dresses Mordechai with it. And he leads him, he rides him in, this, in the street of the city. And he calls out before him, this is what's done to a man whom the king wants to show favor and glory. Vayoshav Mordechai El Shar Hamelech. Mordechai returns to the portal of the king. Haman goes to his home, mourning, melancholy, depressed. Comes the Gemara. Source number six in your curriculum. Bring up source number six. The Gemara Megillah after Zion Amid Aleph. Vayoshev Mordechai El Shar Hamelech. What does it mean that Mordechai returned to the portal of the king? Why is that relevant? Amar Reb Sheishes. said Sheshav Lesakayu Letan Nisoy. Mordechai returned to his sackcloth and to his fasting. When Mordechai heard the decree of genocide, he put on a sack. He sat there with a sack, crying and weeping and fasting. Open up source number 7, the beginning of chapter 4 of the Megillah of the book of Esther. Mordechai Mordechai found out what happened by Yikra. Mordechai rent his garments. He donned a sackcloth and ashes. He went out to the street of the city. And he screamed a great and bitter cry. Now Mordechai was led in a beautiful, gracious parade by his arch enemy Haman, by the top minister in the empire in the palace, second in command to Haman. And he was led by Haman on the streets of the city, screaming, Haman is screaming, this is the man whom the king loves and cherishes. After this, what would you expect Mordechai to do? To go back fasting? To go back to his sack? You won! You were triumphant! Mordechai, cash it in! Don't you see what happened here? 
this Haman tried to execute you, tried to tell the king to hang you instead. He ended up being your servant in the streets. This is your moment of grace. This is your moment of favor. Go rub shoulders with the king. Go to Ahasuerus and cash in the favor even more. No. Mordechai goes back fasting as though nothing happened. Azavi in Yiddish, they say, Azavi nisht amat mengemeint, as though it's totally irrelevant to him. Why are you going back fasting and with this sack, going back to put on your sack after you had this glory? I mean, imagine even the psychological contrast. One moment you're in the center of the city, being led by the second in command of the Persian Empire, which was the most dominant empire in the world. Mordechai is being led by Haman. And a moment later, he's back in his sack, like a homeless beggar, crying and screaming and fasting. Not eating, not drinking. Why did Mordechai go back to the same position? This is the beginning of celebration. This is the beginning of festivity. Go to the king and plead with him. He's on your side now. This is Haman's low day, bad day. This is your good day. Use it out, manipulate it. Many more questions, many more issues can be discussed, but this will be enough for now. Here, we discover the paradox of Judaism. We discover one of the most fundamental hashkafic perspectives in Judaism, which seems like a very powerful paradox. At first glance, it seems there are two different philosophies. One philosophy is, I believe that there is a God who created the world, runs the world, governs the world, and orchestrates every event in the world. I believe in God. And therefore, when I have a problem, when I have a dilemma, when I have a challenge, I go to God, I pray to God. Another philosophy is, no. There is nature. There's a process of nature. <laughs> nature dictates what happens in the world. There are tsunamis and there are hurricanes and there are earthquakes. There is politics and there is diplomacy. There are the, there are the laws of economics and there are the general laws of nature, of science and of physics. And these laws of nature are what govern the world. Two very different perspectives. What you might call today the religious perspective and the secular perspective the believer's perspective, or the agnostic's or atheist perspective. And of course, many have, each of them have many details and many dimensions and many aspects. You can't easily relegate, to Judaism, relegate Judaism to one of these perspectives. Judaism advocates the concept of unity, of oneness. There are no two realms, and there's not a choice to make between God and nature. Either God runs the world, or Ahasuerus runs the world. Washington runs the world. There is one single unifying reality. Unified reality. I think I can best explain it through an anecdote. There was once a child who wanted a hundred dollars. Comes to his mother says, Mom, I need a hundred dollars. Mom says, go to dad. Comes to dad, dad, I really need a hundred dollars. Dad says, you need a hundred dollars. Please. Here's a dollar. 
Go buy yourself a can of Coca-Cola and leave me alone. Your mother rejects you. Your father rejects you. What do you do now? So, the child sits down, writes a letter to God. The letter reads, Dear God, this is your child. I really need $100. Mommy said no. Daddy said no. Please give me $100. Child puts the letter in the envelope, stamps the letter, addresses it to the Lord of the USA. He thinks if God is everywhere, he must be in America too. And places the letter in a mailbox. Post office gets it. It's addressed to the Lord of the USA. This happened a few years ago. In the anecdote, who's the Lord of the USA? So they send it to the President of the United States of America. President of the United States of America gets the letter. The closest thing they think of the Lord of the USA, the closest thing they can get to the Lord of the USA, the President. Mr. President, Secretary gives him the letter, you're going to enjoy this letter, and the President reads the letter, this innocent, naive kid is asking God for a hundred dollars. And the president is moved by the innocence of this child. He tells the secretary, you know what, send this boy in the mail $5. The president thinks a kid gets in the mail $5 from nowhere, he'll be overjoyed. The boy gets the $5 in the mail. Sits down to write a thank you letter to God. And this is how the letter reads. Dear God, thank you so much for sending me $100. For whatever reason I noticed that you were compelled to send the money through Washington. Now, those idiots deducted 95% for taxes before they sent me the rest of the money. God, do me a favor. Next time, please try to send all of the money to me directly. In the Jewish perspective, there is only one ruler of the world. God created the world, God is the master of the world, and God rules every incident and detail in the entire universe. But, nature also belongs to God. It's not that there are two realms. The money may go through Washington, but it comes from God in the Jewish perspective. Nature is also a vehicle and an instrument of Hashem. It's not just God runs the world sometimes when He performs a miracle. Even the natural processes of the governance of this world also belong to God. God utilizes various mediums, channels, instruments through which He runs this world. Whether it's biology or science or physics or politics or economics or history or various events that govern the history of humanity and civilization. The money may come through this medium or that medium, may come through Washington, but the child was right. The source of the money, the source of the flow, the source of the energy is from God. So it's not just there is a God in heaven who has some type of control of the world, and then there is nature, and the question is, who do you choose? Do you choose God, or do you choose nature? From a Jewish perspective, nature is also divine. The earth is also a mirror of heaven. Physicality and spirituality are not two worlds. God and the universe are not two separate entities. They are one. The entire universe is divine. It's just, sometimes God shows His presence through a supernatural event. Usually God runs the world through 
the veil, through the curtain, through the covering of nature. But nature is nothing but a medium, a garment, an instrument through which God runs the world like a hand in the glove. And God tells us and instructs us in the Torah that in order to be able to access His energy, to be able to access His blessing, His flow, we must employ the mediums that He created, the mediums of nature, in order to access His energy. Now, we will understand what happened at the time of Purim. The Jewish people then made a mistake. And this mistake is described in those few Talmudic words we had in the earlier source, in source number two, they enjoyed the meal, the feast of that wicked person. After many years of destruction, displacement, exile, suddenly the Jewish people looked around them and they saw that they find themselves in a state of prosperity. The king is not only tolerant and respectful to the Jewish people, but Mordechai, who is a leading Jewish figure, is employed as a senior advisor and member of the king's mansion and palace. Those who knew the truth, although it was sha sha sha, but the Jews knew, knew that for the first time in history, the first lady is who? Is Aida Shemaidel. Is a Jewish girl. The king doesn't know it, but we know it. The Jews know it. And it's fascinating, by the way, that the Jews didn't expose the secret. Although the many of them knew who Esther was, she grew up in a Jewish community. Suddenly, the king invites them to a meal. He invites them to the feast. Seven days is a major feast in the White House of Shushan Abira. And who is invited? The Jews are invited. And not only they are invited, Mordechai is a chief butler in the feast. There's a whole Jewish section. And the Jews think to themselves, finally, after so many years, we made it. Finally, we're not isolated. We're not quarantined. We're not rejected. The stereotypes have been removed. The Jewish condition has been normalized. Finally, we're integrated. Finally, we're embraced. Finally, we're invited to a feast in the White House where we can take a picture with the king himself and appear on the front page of the Shushan Times and appear on all the networks and the websites and the blogs. Finally, we can rub shoulders with the top personalities and figures and celebrities of the Persian Empire. We ourselves can become celebrities. Finally, we made it in the real world. This is what the Talmud means. Take a look again. Bring up source number two. Take a look again. The Talmud should have said, Achlu. They ate from the meal. If the problem was the food, it should have said, They ate, not they enjoyed. The Talmud uses the word, The problem was not the non-kosher food. Some of them may have eaten non-kosher, as one medrash says. Some of them may have eaten kosher. The problem was the nanu, the tremendous enjoyment that they had from the feast. Suddenly their self-confidence, suddenly their esteem, their recognition, their self-respect came from the fact that I say Russia, that this wicked person, Achashverosh, wearing the garments of the high priest, using the vessels of the holy temple, invited them to a feast and this is what they enjoyed. 
This became the source of their contentment and happiness and hope and enjoyment. This was the problem. Finally they felt now we can be secure with our survival. Secure with our position. Why? Because Ahasuerus gave us legitimacy. Because Ahasuerus smiled to us. Because Ahasuerus invited us to a meal. Finally we're regular normal human beings. You want to eat, eat gesund hate. But the nanu, their enjoyment came from it. They loved it. They cherished it. They couldn't believe their luck, their mazel. Ah! I can rub shoulders with Achashverosh. Ah! I can take pictures with Achashverosh's people. Ah! I can dress up and hang out in the White House of Shushan. Finally, we're normal people. And they forgot for a moment what is a Jew? They forgot Vosses Ayid. A Jew is the creature who was chosen to bring heaven down to earth. To reveal that at the core of the universe there is a moral presence. To reveal the truth that Ahasuerus too is only a vehicle of God. To reveal the truth that heaven and earth are one. And that nature too is also a voice of God being articulated through nature. To reveal the truth that the world was conceived in love. And at the core of reality there is a moral voice, a moral presence, a moral authority. They forgot the main contribution of the world to civilization. To pave a road in the jungle of history. And to reveal the truth that that the world is one. The world is a holistic place. There is oneness at the core of the universe. The money may come through Ahasuerus, but it comes from God. The king invites you to a meal, you have to go. The Torah tells us, You don't rely on miracles. God will bless you in what you do. In other words, you have to do. You have to work. You're in exile. There is a king who was given dominance and power. He invites you to the feast. Go to the feast. You have to get dressed up. Get dressed up for the feast. You have to speak respectfully, of course. Torah says, Dina de Malchusa The law of the land is the law, according to Torah. V'dorshu b'shloimer, Jeremiah says, Jews, wherever they are, have the responsibility to seek the welfare of the government in the country where they live. But vas is the nenu But why are you enjoying it so much? Why is this the source of your pride? The source of your dignity. You have to do it, do it. But realize that Ahasuerus doesn't run the world and you're not existing because Ahasuerus smiles to you. And your success is not coming because you're rubbing shoulders with somebody who yesterday was an anti-Semite. And you think that now he's your best friend. This is not where your existence is coming from. Don't forget that you're a Jew. You're a messenger of God. You're an ambassador of the divine in this world to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth. To show that the truth of the world is ethics and justice and love and morality. To bring holiness and goodness into the world. And to reveal that even nature is a vehicle of God. Don't get lost. Don't get so caught up in the smile of a nanu. They tell a story about the great Chafetz Chaim. I heard it was during the First World War and he went to visit a platoon of Jewish soldiers. And one of the was during dinner and the the meal that was served for dinner that night was ham. Davarach is swine. The Chavetz Chaim saw a young Jew, a soldier, 
who happened to be a former student of his, eating the ham. And as he was watching, the Chafetz Chaim started to cry. So this young Jew turned to his teacher and he said, Rebbe, you know that it's pikuach nefesh, you know that according to Jewish law, I'm completely permitted to eat this. We're in a state of war. If I don't have the power, I'm not going to survive. If I don't eat, I'm not going to be able to survive. According to Jewish law, you don't have to die for eating kosher. The Chafetz Chaim said, yes, I understand. But why are you sucking the marrow out of the bones? You have to eat, eat. But what is the nanu? Why are you quelling so much? Why are you enjoying it so much? Why is this a cause of such deep celebration for you? At that moment, the Jews forgot that this is not the secret of their existence. Achashverish does not run the world. Persian Empire does not run the world. They forgot that tomorrow the tides can change and a new anti-Semite could come to power and God forbid things can change very drastically and that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. A little while later, Haman was elevated and suddenly from nowhere, a whole new energy was introduced into Persia. Tremendous Jew hatred and anti-Semitism to the extent that he persuaded the king to exterminate the Jewish people. Now... Let's go further and let's understand the continuation of the story. When Mordechai comes to Esther and says, Go plead with Achashverosh. What does Esther say? What's the first thing we're going to do? The first thing we're going to do is, We're going to fast for three days and three nights. Because Esther understood that even though Achashverosh issued forth the decree, because of Haman's persuasion, but ultimately it's a decree from God. God runs the world even if now it's being run through the Persian Empire, through Achashverosh. So in order to secure the eternity and the survival of the Jewish people, what we need is we need to build our relationship with God. What we need to do is we need to reconnect with God. What we need to do is we have to align ourselves with the Almighty. And the best way for that is through repentance, through prayer, through fasting. So Esther says, that's what the first thing you should do. Go gather the Jewish people and create a renaissance. Create a transformation in the Jewish consciousness and the Jewish psyche that they should realize that they are a nation of God and they are a nation under God. And although they're living in Persia under the rule of Achashverosh, Achashverosh is also under God. And therefore Esther says, the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure and secure our relationship with God who is the exclusive master and owner of the world and no one else owns anything in the world. Not Haman and not Achashverosh. Ah, but the same God also says, don't just sit at home and pray. And don't just go to synagogue and pray and don't just fast. God tells you to employ the vehicles of nature because those are His vehicles. And one of the vehicles of nature is diplomacy and contacts and relationships. And therefore Esther says, I'm going to go into the king. But since that is not going to make it or break it, it's not Ahasuerus who is going to decide what will be the fate of the Jewish people. It's God who is going to decide what's going to be the fate of the Jewish people. So the moment you secure the primary factor, which is your relationship with God, now the vehicle of nature you don't have to be so meshuggah about. You don't have to be so meticulous about. 
So once Esther undertook the fasting, whether she's going to look this way or that way as a result of the fasting, this did not matter so much because this is only a vehicle that God wants us to employ because He runs the world through natural vessels. That's what exile, when the Jews are in exile, it means God runs the world through Teva, through nature, and therefore we must employ nature in order to access His salvation and His flow of energy. But it's only a vehicle, it's only a medium, it's only an instrument. You don't worship the instrument, you don't worship the axe, which a person is using to chop. You don't worship the axe. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important medium, it's an important vehicle. She's going to get dressed for Achashverosh. But this is not going to make it or break it. And therefore Esther did not put her whole focus on what she's going to look like. Her primary focus was the relationship with God. After that relationship is secured, now we go to stage two. Stage two is God wants us to employ the vehicles of nature in this world. That's how he set up the world. He runs the world through a very meticulous process of nature. So we're going to employ that vehicle. How? By getting dressed up, by going into Akashverish, by pleading with them. But if the vehicle and the instrument is not impeccable and it's not flawless, it's not going to make it or break it. This explains also Mordechai. What was the first thing Mordechai did? The first thing Mordechai did right when he heard about the decree was open up source number 7. What was the first thing? Look again at source number 7. The first thing Mordechai did when he heard about the decree. He didn't run to the king. The first thing Mordechai did was he put on a sack... He began praying, he began crying. Then he understood it's time also for diplomacy and he sent Esther to the king. Now we'll understand what happened with Mordechai. Even after Haman takes him around the streets of the city and celebrates with Mordechai. So you would think now Mordechai will finally be content and won't go back to fasting. Comes the Talmud and says, no, as we learned earlier in source number 6, bring up source number 6. After Amen takes him around the street, what does Mordechai do? He goes back to his sackcloth and his fasting. Why? You had such a victory. Why go back fasting? The answer is Mordechai understood. The decree did not come from Haman. The decree did not come from Achashverosh. They are not the masters over the Jewish people. The decree ultimately came from God and therefore Mordechai understood that the decree against the Jewish people has to do with their relationship with God. If the Jews are completely connected with God, just as nobody can kill God, and nobody can obliterate God, and nobody can exterminate God, nobody can exterminate God's children. If God is the master of the world, and He gave the Torah, and the Torah says these are His children, you can't exterminate Him, you can't exterminate His children. The problem is that there is a disalignment, there is a separation. So Mordechai understood the primary issue that we need is we need tshuva. We need the Jewish people to be divine. We need the Jewish people to be godly. So Mordechai is not going to run to Hashverosh and Haman. It's not because Haman hates him that he can kill a Jew. It's not because Hashverosh is also an anti-Semite that he can kill a Jew. I, Haman, took him to the street of the city and screamed, Haman is already saying that Mordechai is the most glorious man in the empire. That's Haman's problem. 
That's Achashverosh's problem. What does it have to do with the Jewish people? The decree didn't come from Haman, it didn't come from Achashverosh. They were the vehicles of the natural process which God employs. So just like Esther understands that the primary thing you need is the fasting, although you also have to employ diplomacy, Mordechai understood the same thing. He sent already Esther to deal with diplomacy, to deal with Achashverosh. What does he have to do? He's not going to go for a party with Achashverosh. He's not going to go for a party with Haman. He may have been given the honor. He may have been given the glory. Very nice. But what does it have to do with the decree? It doesn't have to do with the decree. And therefore, what does Mordechai do? He runs back to his sack. He runs back to his fasting to continue engaging and strengthening and intensifying and rejuvenating his relationship with God, not only his, but the entire Jewish people. As the Medrash says, Mordechai gathered 22,000 Jewish children to study Torah with them. And they screamed, Im cha'anu ben l'chaim ben we're with you, whether to life or with death. And look what he was learning. And, and this is what Mordechai did. And look what he was learning with them. A fascinating thing. Take a look. Bring up source number eight. Fascinating story. Megillah of Zion Amid Aleph. When the king sends Haman to go summon Mordechai and put him on a horse and lead him through the streets of Persia, of Shushan, and scream, So the Talmud tells a story. Number eight. Haman comes and he sees that Mordechai, the teacher, is sitting in front of him, our students. And Mordechai is teaching him the laws of Kmitzah. Teaching them the laws of Kmitzah. Omar Luhu, I'll explain. Omar Luhu, Haman says, skisu, What are you doing? Omrulay, they tell him, When the temple stood in Jerusalem, somebody who used to contribute a mincha, which was an offering from grain, from meal, so he would bring the meal, and he would make a koimetz. A koimetz is to take three fingers and put it in the three, these three fingers, and put it in the meal, and then and then close it. And then this part of the meal, which were under these three fingers, he would place on the altar, and that would be the offering to God. This was the sixteenth day of Nisan. Rashi explains this was the sixteenth day of Nisan. Sixteenth day of Nisan, there was an offering called minchas ha'aymer, carbon aimer. Basically, flour made of barley would be taken, and the priest would make kmitzah, he would take part of the flour, and he would offer it on the altar as a carbon minchan offering of mincha. This was the 16th day of Nisan. So Mordechai was teaching his students the laws of kmitzah relevant to that day. Omar Luhu Haman told them, told them, You're little flower that you are learning about is going to come and expel the 10,000 silver tons of silver coins that he offered to Achashverosh in order to exterminate the Jewish people. Now let's understand what Mordechai was learning with them. It's in the middle of a decree of genocide. The decree came out a few days ago, right before Pesach. They're in the middle of fasting. What should Mardukai learn with them? What would you learn with your students? Learn with them the laws of war. Learn with them the laws of fasting. Learn with them the laws of tshuva. No, Mardukai is learning the laws of Kmitzah, which relate to Jerusalem, to Abbas Hamikdash, because it's a Zionist. How out of touch with reality can you be? Who's thinking about a temple in Jerusalem? Who's thinking about Minchas Who's thinking about carbon Kmitzah? 
But this isn't true. This is Mordechai. Mordechai doesn't care. There's a Haman, there's a Hashverish. They're screaming, they're hollering. We're going to kill the Jewish people. Mordechai knows he's a Jew. Who is the Jew? The Jew is the one who brings down to the world the awareness that that there's oneness, that there's a godliness that saturates the whole world. It's now Pesach. You have to learn Hilchus Kmitz. You have to learn Torah. You have to do Truva, but you have to learn Torah. And what are you learning? It's Pesach. So we learn the laws of Kmitz. Because it's the second day of Pesach when in the temple they would bring the Omer. Now comes, you might think, this is all nice, it's beautiful, it's romantic, it sounds good. This is true in the times of the temple. This is true in the times when there's holiness in the world, when God is more revealed in the world. Then you could talk about this concept. God runs the whole world, and the main thing is your relationship with God. Comes the Megillah and tells us another story. This is a book where God's name is not mentioned even once, representing the fact that God is completely concealed. What is it called? Megillah's Esther. The Megillah of Esther. Esther means concealment. And that is why the Megillah doesn't have God's name mentioned even once to tell us that this truth that's at the heart of the narrative of Purim, it's at the heart of the story of Megillah, this truth is not defined only in times when God's name is revealed, even when God's name is completely concealed. And it looks like that the empire of Persia or Washington, or the State Department, or the UN, or this country, or that country, really run the world, and they can issue forth a decree of genocide, even in such a climate, and even in such an ambience. Mordechai and Esther knew the truth that don't bow down to Haman, because Haman also has a master, and the world also has a master. And the job of the Jew is to take Esther and turn it into a Megillah, to take concealment and turn it into revelation. And this has tremendous application to every person's life, to each of our lives. Let's take the example of making a living. A person has to work to make a living. Sometimes people think, if I get up in the morning and I go daven, I go pray, or I dedicate time to study Torah, or I use my money for charity, or to do other mitzvahs, or I have to close my store on Shabbos, I will not earn a successful livelihood. I have to compromise on these beautiful things because I have to make a living. I want to make money. I have a family to support. I want to live in luxury or prosperity or at least make ends meet. And look at my neighbor. Look at my friend. He's at the office 7 o'clock in the morning. If I'm going to go pray and meditate and learn every day and have a shir, how will I be in the office at 8 o'clock in the morning? I can't. I'll be there at 9.30 and I'll already lose the competition. So the Jew often thinks I have to compromise on my relationship with God in order to be able to make a good living and make a good, make a good salary. And this is the tremendous mistake that we have to realize and it's at the heart of the story of Purim. And to give a simple example, you come to a bank and you see that people are withdrawing money. So you ask somebody, how do people withdraw money? I need money. They say, fill out a withdrawal slip and you'll take out the money. So he goes and he fills out a withdrawal slip. He wants to buy a house. He needs down payment, $300,000, a beautiful mansion. He fills out a withdrawal slip, $300,000. He gets online and he gives it to the the woman in the bank. She says, what's this? He says, I want to take out $300,000. She takes a look. She says, there's one problem. In your account is $350. He says, but they told me that with a withdrawal slip, you can take out the money. She says, of course, but you have to first have money in the account. If you have money in the account, then the withdrawal slip is the mechanism through which you take out the money. 
So he says, but I'm standing here at the bank from 9 o'clock a.m. I was the first one in the bank. And I was the first one online. She says, it's a beautiful thing. You were online and you have a withdrawal slip. But the money you don't have in the account, you don't have $300,000. But he says, I don't understand you. He comes back, he laminates his withdrawal slip. He designs it, it's beautiful. It's gracious. And he delivers it. They say, it's a beautiful withdrawal slip. You need the money in the bank. And this is the story of life. Do you have to have a job in order to make money? Yes, but this is a vehicle, it's an instrument. God established the world in a way that His flow and His money comes through vehicles of nature, through Parnassah, through the work that you do, then God blesses that work. It's a channel, it's a pipe, it's a sinner through which He sends His flow. But when you worship the channel rather than the source, then you're out of touch with reality. So the job that you have is like the withdrawal slip. In order to withdraw the divine flow through money, you need to have a job. You need to engage in some form of work in order to create a vessel and a slip through which you can withdraw the money of God. But the money you have to have in the account, the Bible says, it's my silver, it's my gold. So a Jew comes and says, I'm not going to learn, I'm not going to have a shear, I'm not going to go daven, I'm not going to spend time. Educating my children, spending time with my family, dedicating time to my soul and to goodness and kindness because I want to make a living. So it's like a person who's giving the, given an opportunity to connect with the source of the living, with the source of the money, is going to say, I'm going to spend time dedicating my with, uh, uh, rent, uh, I'm going to spend time decorating my withdrawal slip. A job is very important, but it's a withdrawal slip. The time when you pray, you're connecting to the source of the money. You're connecting to God. The time when you learn, you're connecting to the source of the money. When you give charity, that's how you connect to God. You do a mitzvah, that's how you connect to God. You educate your children, that's how you connect to God. You do a favor to somebody, that's how you connect to God. You bring light into the world, that's how you connect to God. You need a job, you need a job. So you say, but I have to be first in the office, I'm not going to go daven. It's like being first in the bank, it's not going to help you take out the money. What you need to take out the money is you need money in the account, not be first in the bank. If you have money in the account, you can come later to the bank and take out all the money. And if you don't have money in the account, you could be at the bank 4 o'clock in the morning and it won't help you. So a Jew might, but on the other hand, on the other hand, you can't just say, okay, I, have a with, I, I, uh, <laughs> I prayed, I have money in the account. Now you have to also have a withdrawal slip. You have to go to the bank. You have to employ the vehicles of nature in order to access God's blessing. This is not the path of asceticism, of segregation. God wants you to use nature because that's a vehicle which He established and through which He orchestrates and runs this world. Just like Esther had to go to Achashverosh. So a Jew might think, ah, this is true when I'm in an environment of holiness. Maybe when I'm dealing with people like me. Comes the Torah and says, Purim is not a Hebrew name, it's a Persian name. In other words, even when you're speaking Persian, even when you're speaking English, even when you're involved in an environment, in an ambience that they don't understand what Goyrul means, they know what Purim means. Even when you're speaking English or French or Italian or Russian, you're not speaking Russian Kurdish. You're in an environment which doesn't understand the Holy Tongue. It has the same message of Purim. This is not only true in Hebrew, it's true in English and in Persian as well. And that's why the Megillah says, Al-Kain Karul Purim Al-Shema Pur. Hu You, the Jew, has to understand that what looks like Pur is really a Goyrul. What looks like a Persian word, Pur, a lot, is really a Goyrul. It's a Hebrew holy word. 
It's just concealed. What looks like nature is really supernatural. And what looks earthy is really heavenly. And what looks like the world is really divine. It's just how godliness is accessed and concealed within the veil of nature. They tell the story about a father who was very enlightened. And his son had a simple faith in God. And he always tried to convince his son that faith was fanatical and extreme and ridiculous and irrational. But he couldn't get his son to reject his faith. So finally he decided one night he's going to do a shtick. What did he do? He takes a piece of paper and he writes down on the piece of paper, God is nowhere. God is nowhere. And he places it under the pillow of his child. He thinks his child will wake up in the morning and he'll see a note from heaven that God is nowhere. And finally he will acquiesce and concede that there's no God. In the morning he's eating breakfast. His child wakes up. His child comes running to the kitchen with a little note under his pillow and says, Daddy, Daddy, you won't believe what I found under my pillow. A message from heaven. And the message reads, Look, Daddy, God is now here. Have a wonderful evening and a happy Purim.